Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. And welcome to this series six. It's series six. Series six, episode 10 of Out with Susie Ruffle. Hello. I hope that wherever you are, you're having a good day. Now, this uh, this little intro is coming a little bit late. I'm actually doing it on the day it's released, which means some of you will hear this bit. And some of you will already have downloaded a version of it where you don't get this bit. You'll just get the live episode. So this is sort of a little bit of extra of me saying hi. Um, and also to let you know that this is going to be the last episode of this series. Well, it's not. It's sort of the last official episode of the series. And then next week I've got a bonus one, which is going to be a slightly shorter episode with a uh, with a choreographer that I'm really excited to chat to later on today. So that will be out. And then we'll have a little break in January where I'm going to go and get loads of interviews and all the people that you guys have been asking me to get. And I've reached out to lots of people. I've got some really exciting people that have said yes, doing some link ups across the pond, which is very exciting. I'm trying to get more asexual content, which people have asked for. I've got more bisexual content with people have asked for. I'm doing my best to, to honor every letter in our queer alphabet. Um, and, uh, and, and to get some of those big names that some of you have been asking for. I'm doing my best and I'll continue to do that. Um, today's episode is really brilliant. Um, I'm really, really proud of it. It's with Owen Jones, who you, uh, you you probably be aware of. He's a brilliant journalist and activist. And we did a live episode at the Soho Theatre. I thought it was a really special night. I was really proud of the show. I was really thrilled that so many people came and filled the main space at the Soho Theatre in London, which uh, for a relatively small Quill podcast is um, no mean feat. And so I was very, very proud of that. It also... Uh, was just full of the best people. So if you were there, thank you very, very much for coming. So um, as always, I'll share a couple of listener emails and then we'll get on with the conversation, which today is live. How exciting. Okay. Hi, Susie. I'm in my late 30s and I felt completely different for as long as I can remember. It's been something that I've focused on more during the last five years or so. I've never really had anyone that I could probably talk to about it. But this year I made a new queer friend. And he has been so wonderful at listening to me and opening my world to queer culture, including your podcast. I really resonate with what you describe as otherness. I'm not ready to associate myself with any particular letter of the LGBTQIA plus alphabet yet, but I'm making progress and I hope I'll be able to too. Right now, I think that I'm either pan or bi, but almost certainly on the asexual spectrum. Writing this email is the first time I've ever articulated that. Listening to your podcast has really helped me understand about my sexuality and to realise that I'm not frigid or a prude or boring. I just need to connect with someone before that I can find them sexually attractive. This has been a very freeing revelation and your episode with Yasmin Benoit was one of my absolute favourites. I'm also absolutely loving Queering the Map. I can spend hours looking at all those messages of queer joy and heartbreak all over the world and feel like I'm not on my own. I'm so thankful to my new friend and for you and the podcast. It's so beautiful and important and you help so many people with your work. Thank you for saying that. I used to feel quite stressed that I needed to decide who I was or put myself into a box. And I realise now that I don't need to do that. I can just be myself and can enjoy figuring out what that is. While appreciating who I am might change throughout my life and that's okay. If you decide to read this out, I'm not ready to share my name yet, but I'm sending you lots of love and light. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. Yeah. I think that it's so important that you don't like, you know, no, you don't need to get stressed about feeling like you have a label or I think I think that comes up again and again, doesn't it? Like people that listen every week, 
I think we've all felt like that at some point or another where you're like, oh God, I need to, I need to get this, I need to work out what this is and write it down and have it, you know, signposted, but you actually don't. And I'm so pleased that you've met a queer friend. And um, I remember meeting my first queer friends and they're still some of my dearest friends. My um, my first ever girlfriend, Faye, was one of my, one of my first queer friends and she's still a really important person in my life. And yeah, it's uh, it's really important to to hold on to those relationships and to have someone that where you see yourself or a version of yourself reflected back. It's just so important. But thank you for the kind things that you said about the podcast. And I'm sending you lots of love and light as well. Okay, let's have another one. Dear Susie, first of all, thank you for your brilliant series. I really enjoy listening to you, your listeners, and your guest story and the experiences and your conversations. I often find myself yearning for profound and meaningful conversations with both humour and sincereness and for story that I can either relate to or learn from, and I get that all from listening to Out. So thank you for that. Speaking of Out, lately I've been thinking a lot about coming out and being out and what that really means. I'm gay, or maybe queer, woman in my 30s, and even though I have known that I'm into women since my early teens, I've started coming out in my late 20s, and I still find it difficult to talk about with lots of people, including a large part of my family. I come from and live in quite an open-minded and secular Scandinavian country, and luckily, I've never faced any direct discrimination. People around me have always been quite supportive or at least neutral when I have come out to them. I know that most, if not all of the people around me, won't have a problem with my sexuality at all. It just wouldn't come as a huge surprise to anyone that I'm not straight. So of course I've thought a lot about what it is from keeping me being more open and more honest with my family at work and just in general. Some of it's probably internalised homophobia and shame and old but still open wounds from my childhood and teens. The talk of being gay, although seldomly overtly homophobic, was mostly negative. The reaction from my friends and family wouldn't have necessarily all have been love and understanding if I had the courage to come out in my teens. I also think a big part of it is not everyone around me would judge me for being gay, but they would possibly judge me for talking about it. I've always been utterly confused about what to tell and what not to tell people, and in what circumstances you would tell them. I've always had the feeling that people rarely talk to each other. I mean, sure, people talk, gossip and discuss subjects and sometimes LGBT plus issues are one of those subjects because luckily it isn't to be where I come from. But it has been my experience that people rarely show real vulnerability and talk about what they really feel and experience, especially where family is concerned. I doubt I'm the only person who was a child who has spent family dinners, school recesses and most human interactions thinking and being extremely frustrated about all the things that are so clearly left unsaid and a glaring contrast between the unsaid and the superficial conversations. It always makes me sad and frustrated, but I never dared say anything about it. Instead, I went in the opposite direction and did exactly what frustrated me most. I didn't share about anything about how I was feeling or what I was thinking. If I had the slightest fear that it wouldn't be accepted or understood, or that it would make my family disappointed or ashamed or even just worried, this led to a lot of secrecy and feeling lonely and a very lonely double life. Starting a couple of years before I discovered that I wasn't straight, my sexuality was just one of the secrets amongst others for me, not even my biggest one. Instead, my biggest secret was that when I was a child, I had struggled a lot with severe obsessive compulsive disorder, which I'd quite effectively hidden from everybody since I was around eight years old. This is, of course, a much longer and complex story that I don't have the time or space to write about here. But like sexuality, I didn't feel like I could share this with anyone. I felt like opening up and getting help and the same process of coming out in my early 20s when the OCDs and the secrecy and the shame and the loneliness had left me extremely depressed and my life felt in such a huge mess and that I needed help from my parents to survive. I survived and although my parents have been a large although sometimes maybe imagined contributing factor to me feeling like I had to hide both my mental health and my sexuality, they were loving and very helpful when I finally came out and told them about it. Honestly, I think they were relieved that I said it out loud, at least regarding my sexuality. The OCD and my mental health issues surprised them a lot more, but they were very supportive. But that is now more than 10 years ago, and I still haven't come out about any of it to my other family members, even though we spend a lot of time together. On the one hand, I can feel how damaging this is as I continue to be closed off and showing so little of myself, and that it is hurting the otherwise close relationship I have with my niece and nephew, who I love to bits. But on the other hand, it's very hard to speak up when that isn't the norm to do so, and I'm so afraid of oversharing and being wrong for breaking all the unwritten rules about when it's okay and when it's not okay to talk. In other words, 
Even though the silence creates a lot of distance and loneliness, I'm still silent because I fear that speaking up could possibly even create more distance and loneliness in a much more painful and heartbreaking way. This is not just regarding my family, but in all situations in my life and in society as a whole. As I said, I live in an LGBT plus friendly country, but it only takes a quick look around the comment section under any LGBT plus content on social media. And there's quite a lot of commentaries along the lines of, why do we need to know this? I don't walk around sharing my sexual life. Why do they keep on blabbing on about it? Keep your private life private. And I don't want to hear that anymore. Some of the people writing this might be trying to criticize the media and the public debate and not LGBT plus people themselves. I've also read quite a few comments along the lines of LGBT plus people being overly attention seeking, exhibitionist or narcissist for wanting to say what they have or to flaunt our sex lives or we want to be seen as something special. I know I shouldn't read the comment sections on social media or indeed see them as a representative of most people's opinions, but I still frequently hear the sentiments quite close to this in everyday life, even though said with a little more subtlety. I should probably fight and speak up more when this happens and let people know that I am part of that group and that they're calling out or criticising and sometimes I have the courage to do so. Other times I wish I could just crumble myself up and disappear. I know that this fear and secrecy holds me back from pursuing things that I want. First of all it's kept me from getting really close to a lot of people, both romantically and otherwise, but it's also held me back from pursuing my part-time career in music. Through these years of hiding, music was also always my way of surviving and expressing myself. The only good byproduct of hiding is writing quite a lot of songs. I've also gotten several suggestions and even some offers to go more public with my music, but the fear of exposing so much of myself and receiving the reactions mentioned above has kept me from it. This email is getting way, way too long and rambling, I'm sorry, but I guess what I wanted to practice was coming out and being more vulnerable in a more of a safe space. And I just before I decide to do it in my real life. So I wanted to thank you and your guests and your listeners who have written and sharing the vulnerable part of their selves. So maybe it makes it a bit easier for me to do so. And lots of love. And that comes from Denmark. And I'm not going to share her name because she doesn't feel ready. She also mentioned that her English, that there might be a problem with her English because it's not a native language. I mean, that was perfect English, just so you know. Absolutely incredible that you've written such a beautiful letter in a language that wasn't your first language. So never apologize ever again about your English please um I related to so much of this email and I really wanted to share it and it wasn't at all too long I'm sure that everyone that's listening will agree with me um I think it's so hard when you have hidden a part of yourself and sometimes when that's several parts of yourself that's built up it's really hard and I think that with coming out and being out you know it doesn't need to be to everyone necessarily and you don't need to have those conversations with everyone. It's just about finding, you know, a, a community in which to do so. And that can be online or it can be, you know, through an LGBT group. And like the the listener from the first email said, finding that one friend that you can talk to and me mentioning my friend Faye can really help. And so I hope that you've got someone in your life or that in 2023 you meet someone in your life that can be that person. And never look at the comment section. Let me tell you this as a performer, as a comedian. I haven't looked at the comment sections or comments under my stand-up videos for about 10 years because they were so horrific and abusive and horrible and always homophobic. Always, always, always homophobic. Those people are people that live in their parents' basements that get kicks out of, not that there's anything wrong with living in your parents' basement. If you're listening to this in your parents' basement, I'm sure you're great. But they're people that don't have a life that their joy is tearing somebody else down. And anyone listening to this podcast, we all know that when we have joy in our life, when we have friends, when we have community, we don't feel the need to say mean things on the internet. Or if we do, we probably need some help. So please don't look at that. Well, that's my advice to you. You can do as you please, but my advice would be never ever look at the comment section and release your music, put your stuff out there. And you know, if it connects with thousands of people, wonderful. It connects with a handful of people. That's still brilliant. That's how I feel about this podcast. This isn't the biggest podcast in the UK, not by any stretch of the imagination. You know, it's not something that is huge, but there are listeners all across the globe who tune in every week to hear these stories and to feel like we have a community. And it doesn't matter that it's not the biggest one in the world. It doesn't matter that it's not making loads of money or got a big sponsor or any of those things that doesn't matter because it's about connecting with people and I know that there are thousands tens of thousands of people across the globe who listen to this show every week who love it and that means the world to me and it's it's about connection it's about connection I don't know if that was too earnest at the end but it's the, it's the last episode of the series I'm allowed to be earnest I think right let's go to the brilliant conversation that I had with the wonderful Owen Jones
This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hi, how's it going? Is everyone all right? We've got, we've got some empty seats. We might have some latecomers. So when they come, let's all tell them to fuck off. If you can't be here on time, you mean nothing to me. Um, I don't mean that. Hello, thank you very much for coming. I've got a bit of a croaky voice. I've got that cold that's not COVID. Soz. Um, I, I assume that most of you listen to the podcast? Oh, not all of you. Okay, some of you. Some of you are going to hate this. This is not stand-up. It's just not, it's, um, but it is gonna be fun, I promise you. Uh, we did one of these a little while ago. We did a live show last month. It was so much fun that I wanted to do another one. Um, we've got a brilliant guest. We're gonna have a lovely chat about all kinds of things. Um, all you guys need to do is just relax, have fun. That's it. Um, at this bit is always quite awkward. Here's one of the latecomers. Don't worry, you're not wearing a stripy jumper. No one's noticed, it's fine. <laughs> It's fine. Dennis the Menace is here. Everyone chill out. It's fine. Where's your seat? Oh, it's there. Fine. Okay. I was just making sure that you had one. Yeah. It's fine. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm all right. Good. Why are you late? <laughs> it's okay that you are. I'm just wondering. Uh, I was having a drink with Helen Lederer in the Groucho Club. You were having a drink with Helen Lederer in the Groucho Club? Clang. All right. Pick up that fucking name. So if you know the show, you'll know that I do a little intro and then we have my brilliant guest today, who is Owen Jones, and we're going to have a lovely conversation and it's going to be lots of fun. Are you up for that? Woo! Okay, brilliant. Oh, we've got some of the, the latecomers. Were you having a drink with Helen Leder in the Groucho? <laughs> Just to check, were you? Yeah, I fucking know everyone. Jesus wept. Okay, let's do this. Hello, Soho Theatre. I am very excited to be sharing the stage with today's guest, the brilliant Owen Jones, a writer, journalist, broadcaster, political commentator and left-wing activist. I have loved his writing for years. I first came across Owen's work when someone suggested I read Chavs, The Dehumanisation of the Working Classes, an astonishing book that got me fired up in the best possible way. Owen is consistently a voice of fairness, hope, compassion, and red-hot anger when it comes to inequality or discrimination in any form. You might know his work from The Guardian, The Independent, The New Statesman, or various TV appearances, or his podcast, The Owen Jones Podcast, which is very good. I think he is bloody brilliant, and I'm delighted to have him on the show today. Please welcome to the stage, Owen Jones! <laughs> Yay! Hiya! Can't see anyone. No, that's, that's, we, that's, that's are they here? They're they not. No, this is just in my head. I know that we do this bit where we're like, "How are you?" And it's like we've not just spent the last forty-five minutes catching up. Um, but how are you today? Ooh, is that a kind of vibe check? Where yeah, am I? Kind of. I'm not rocking in a fetal position, dribbling. I think I'm all right. Yeah. Yet. Yes. <laughs> You've got a everyone's got a cold at the moment, but I yeah. don't really get cold. I don't really do colds. So I just decided opt out. Just not into that? Yeah, just tip the opt-out box. Do you never get sick? Not really. 
I got, um, I think I last got really, when I was six. The last time you were ill, you were six? Like, really, like, in terms of bedridden. What are you taking? I don't know. I think I've got... Hardcore drugs? Part, well, yeah. Yeah, okay, a sure. A lot. I mean, it'll catch up with me. Like, the IOUs, my body are gonna... Like, it'll be, like, a lot of dead. interest. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, I'll be dead by the age of 40. Um... I think I've got to insist, and I don't think her immune system's very good. So I think maybe she just got the weak part of the immune system, and I'm fine. So when you were sharing the womb, you were like, "Ah, nom nom." Well, "Ah, nom nom." I'll have that. I'll in have my defence, yes. I was born with the umbilical cord wrapped around my neck and a massive dent in my head, which she tried to kill me in the womb. So yeah, probably because she was like, <laughs> "Let me have some of the immunity, prick." <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> "So yeah, I mean, it, it evens out." Well, she got, she she got the bad end of that deal. Yeah, yeah. And you just got to be hit in the head, so that's fair enough. Um, I'd like to do a little vibe check, a little check-in, see how you're doing. It feels like you're, and I hope this is okay to say, but it feels like you're angry quite a lot. Well, I find it funny because maybe I do realise you inadvertently end up with a kind of persona, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't, I'm not like that normally, obviously. But obviously, if I'm doing my work, yeah, like writing or going on TV then you kind of have to talk about bad things. Yeah. So then you have to be all angry and you're often put against like Genghis Khan <laughs> <laughs> or someone who's, le- who's even more extreme, like Anne Widdicombe. So it ends up, it ends up being quite a confrontation environment. Sure. But with, I don't argue with my friends. And all the time, I, don't, I just wouldn't want to talk about politics. So I would, I would normally just be much more relaxed, I think. But it is interesting because obviously a lot of people think they meet me and they expect me to be like, ah! yeah, so just chill out, just take the day off. But I, do, I just, that's only when I'm doing my work. So maybe I should try and just chill out a bit more. I think when I do my videos, I'm a bit more chilled out. But I don't know, it's hard because you can't, when you talk about politics, you can't, you know, when you go on TV, you're not, it is you, but it's not you, you, is it? If you're talking about... Right, yeah, you sort of have to put on a bit of a sort of, now I'm doing my political commentator hat. Yeah, it does, though a lot of the time, because I'm 38 now, I'm older than you. I know. Um, so that's... Haggard. <laughs> Haggard. It's she amazing Googled. what two years um, can do, isn't it? Gosh. Makes you think, doesn't it? But I don't know if you find this, but I still feel a lot of the time like I'm kind of 10. And you're kind of in these grown-up situations where everyone's being really grown-up. Oh, I feel like that all the time. Yeah, and you're like in your head, you're like, Rah! in your head. But you have to pretend to be like, yeah. in your head, you're like, I've got to act like a grown-up. Yeah. When people yeah. are like, are you putting in for your pension? You're like, I'm eight. <laughs> like, what are, you, what are you talking about? I'll deal with that later. <laughs> I'm not the only, you, you feel like that, right? Yeah. It's, it's a real fucking concern. <laughs> Just so you know, we're all fucked. Anyway, on with the show. So, so let's talk about let's talk about the child you. Why not? Let's talk about let's start there. Sometimes we do it chronologically on the I show. I looked even more like Macaulay Culkin and Home. No alone. way. Yeah. Oh my god. This must be a busy season for you. I'm amazed that you've made the time for us. It was just you running away from Donald Trump. <laughs> I mean, sort of physically and metaphorically. Yeah, I think in a way I've modelled my whole life on that film. Oh wow. Yeah. Taking down the bad guys. <laughs> yeah, with a lot of kind of comical but whimsical falling out of windows thrown yeah. in for good measure. I've seen less of that. You should put more of that on your <laughs> yeah, YouTube channel. Maybe people in games. People would soften to you. The only reason we don't have socialism in Britain is because I failed to do that. Well, so from now on. Could you fall off the stage, please? Yeah. <laughs> Half the audience thinking, please do it. <laughs> and never Not recover. Uh, that, that's bleak. Yeah, sorry about that. I don't know. I know, I know you've got the medical thing set up, but I'm I've got no training. I haven't actually properly absorbed this. This is quite yeah. actually more intense than I expected. Yeah, I know. It's it's on some sort of odd hospital of, ward sort of scenario. Yeah, it's it's because this show is like therapy, and we're going to section you at the end. It's um, <laughs> that might actually be a good idea. Great, some cool. Some of my friends have recently argued. Oh, okay. That's gone too bleak. So, <laughs> so what would Sheffield like? <laughs> Do you know what? Sheffield is such a great city. But I left when I was four. So what I used to do when I go around the country talking is I would always try and find off, you know, you want to connect with the audience, don't Mm -hmm. you? So wherever I'd go, I'd kind of think of something tenuous to connect. Like my great grandfather once went on a bus there or something. But so Sheffield... Riveting stuff. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But Sheffield, like, because I think I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm so Yorkshire. But I left when I was four. So you can't, I'm kind of a, I'm not even a plastic Yorkshireman, am I? I'm just not really a... You're a Play-Doh Yorkshireman, if you're Play-Doh Yorkshireman, yeah. Because I left when I was four years... So I do remember bits of 
<laughs> I remember like sledging in Maysbrook Park. Okay. But that's it. That's kind of, that's Sheffield for me, sledging in a park when I, I was that's three. pretty accurate. Yeah, and it was fun. It was, I had a great time. But I don't think that's what they do all the time in Sheffield. No, they do. <laughs> that's it. Even in April, it's weird. <laughs> yeah. And did you, so you grew up in Stockport? Yeah, so I did a little, well, I did a little tour of all the glamorous parts of the country. Sure, of course. So I went to Falkirk first yeah. in Scotland. Whenever I tell anyone in Scotland that I lived in Falkirk, they're like, what the hell were you doing there? So I don't know what that means, but they, it's right. not an endorsement. Basically. Sure, okay. Had a big wheel, Falkirk wheel. If you ever go to oh. Falkirk, check it out. That's your lot. But then I moved to, <laughs> to Sheffield, which, uh, Stockport, which has the biggest freestanding brick structure in Europe, which is the viaduct. It right. rains 20 out of every 28 days. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've got more Stockport facts, if you want. Please. Uh, had that last... I think everyone's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's got a great hat museum. A hat museum? Yeah. Uh, do you remember Quine? Do people sing, where did you get that hat? Where did you get that hat? They sh- Maybe. Yeah. And yeah. they'd go... Stockport, and everyone go, ah, yeah, yeah go, the museum. Ah. <laughs> Have you been to Stockport? I've done a show there, yeah. Well, how did it go? Come on, I'll vibe check that. The lesbians of Stockport came out in force. There was, <laughs> there like, everywhere I go, there was the pitter-patter of Birkenstocks. It was... Are there a lot of lesbians in Stockport? They travel. They'll travel uh, yeah. for me. That's the thing. I'm... <laughs> Where I go, you know. <laughs> and some gay men and even straight people. I know. If there are straight people in, please relax. Are we still? You're very welcome here. I love straight people. Mum and dad are straight. Just relax. It's fine. As long as they don't force it down our throats. Yeah, that's the thing I can't stand. What they do in their own time. (laughs) I just, I don't know whether I'm gay or whether I just really like people matching. I'm like, we've got the same bits. That's good. Like, if anything goes wrong, we know how to work it, you know? If you try turning it on and turning it off again. You know, when I asked you to do the podcast, I was like, you know, it's the kind of podcast I wish I had when I was a teenager. This very thing. <laughs> I just like people matching. Um, really hard-hitting stuff. Uh, <laughs> you're looking more and more frightened. Chill out. Um, so I read, that you, I read in one article that you said that you were a fourth-generation socialist. I got rid of that because people said it made me look like a really pretentious dickhead. So well, we're going to lean into it here. It was on my Twitter. So the problem is, it was in my Twitter bio and then got put on my Wikipedia page. Right. So now it's stuck there forever because you yep. can't edit your own Wikipedia pages. So whenever I go anywhere, so I'll go to Spain. I'm not doing a Spanish accent. But they'll Please go don't. in the middle. They'll just go... Yeah, they always bring up the fourth generation socialists. And I realised it was like in my Twitter bio for like a week, but now it's permanently imprinted upon me, so I can't escape it. But it is sort of true. Yeah, okay, fine. Technically true. Uh, yeah. I'll lead into it. Um, yeah, so my great-granddad um, had his wages docked in the general strike of 1926. Okay. So the rail that was when there was a big miner strike, mm-hmm. and then you had lots of the workers came out and support and solidarity with them. Um, and they got smashed by the Tories, which was... A theme which continues sure, to be developed sure, throughout the twentieth sure. century, um, but yeah, he had his ra- he had his wages dollar, which is a big act of sacrifice, which divided the family though. Um, and then my uh, great uncle was a Welsh Methodist preacher, but he was on the football team of the Independent Labour Party. Um, and then my granddad joined the communists in after the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So they seen was kind of cool at that point. Uh, but he was a, he was a dock worker in Portsmouth, and then that's where I'm from. Maybe. No, we're I'm not going to say... We were, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because that would suggest our family had an affair with each other, so I was just trying to avoid that. Possible. But maybe they did. Um, yeah, and then... Uh, Do you want to look like a female Macaulay Culkin? Is that... <laughs> all I'll say is we don't look dissimilar, is no. what I'm saying. Oh, my God. Kind of. I mean, that's, fl- that's flattering for me. Can someone ring ITV's DNA Journeys? Because I think I've got one, and it goes all the way from Portsmouth to a hat museum, so... It's going to be some pretty compelling telly. <laughs> Do I need Brother, to keep continue. Up? Yeah, continue. So then my grandma was a Labour councillor and her proudest achievement was stopping a family getting evicted at Christmas, which is like the only positive contribution that my family... No, that's really harsh, right? That's really harsh, my family. Yeah. No, she was very proud, you know, crewed in a community. And then my parents met outside Tooting Beck Station... That's my ex-aunties. <laughs> Unexpected, by the way. Um, that... They're from Streatham. Yeah. Does that make more sense? Yeah, ish. Yeah. ish. Um, but they met, um, they met in 1968 canvassing for the Labour Party. Romantic. That is romantic. There was a snowstorm, so they went to the pub. Um, 
But um, that is you cute. You are um, a snowstorm. Because <laughs> um, you said to me that by comparison to your mum and dad, you're not that left wing. Well, they're revolutionary Trotskyists who are, I suppose, technically committed to an armed revolution to overthrow capitalism. And um, I suppose if I said that publicly, I'd probably, or, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, what, I have to call for the violent overthrow of capitalism? Look, come, it's a Friday night, Jesus Christ. I don't you know think this is being recorded, don't yeah, you? Yeah. yeah, I'm just trying to avoid... You know what a podcast is, right? Yeah, I've also yeah. read... I've also read the anti-terror legislation that's been enforced for the last few years, so I'm just trying to be careful. Fine. Yeah, sure, sure, I'm Trying sure. to do a podcast and not get arrested for ten and thrown in prison for ten years, and because uh, yeah, parents... I'll come and see you because you're my brother. Um, <laughs> so, was it quite a political household growing up? Were you very aware of what was going on in the world? Yes, but so um, my dad. So my dad was a full time for, for the militant tendency, which was this Trotskyist organisation. Um, and that was his job. That was literally his job. So for like 15 years. A militant? Was it the name of it? It was called militant. Show? Yeah. But the thing is, um, they had two kids, uh, my, my two elder brothers, sure. but they wanted a daughter, right? So they were trying to... So they to got a gay son. Well, they got... <laughs> it's not the same. It's, it's not, not the, be very exactly, clear, It's not exactly guys. the same. It's like... Come so on, let's be a bit more. Come on. <laughs> Try harder, okay? Think about that. Think about that. Well, I was the plus one, basically. Sure. They got the daughter. Couldn't she try to kill you on the way out? Yeah. And she tried to murder, which, you know, maybe she was put up to it by them. <laughs> um, but, so they were then, they doubled their kids, which they weren't that happy about, to be honest. Right. They only found out 33 weeks in, which I find a bit... Wow. Like, like they didn't have proper scans that back then, apparently, in, in Sheffield. Very good at sledging, not very good at scans. Yeah. But, um, so then the revolution didn't pay the bills. And as you might have noticed, we don't actually live in a socialist utopia, so we didn't necessarily succeed in the way we wanted. Sure, sure. But it was during the miners' strike, so I was born right in the middle. So we used to have miners who'd come round and babysit. And I think that's where I learnt my maybe slightly obscene vocabulary. South right. Yorkshire miners. So whenever I go back to York, Sheffield and I always meet these... Like miners will stand up and go, I used to look after you when you, and then say really embarrassing things in front of an entire random audience about the terrible things I did as a toddler. That's amazing. Is it? Is someone saying, <laughs> like what? <laughs> like what? I'm not gonna, obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> and were you, what were you like as a kid? Were you sort of confident and chatty and. Um, I wouldn't say so. So I think for some reason, I think for a while, my hearing wasn't very good as a kid. So my twin had to translate everything for me. Ah. So she was like my translator. But I think girls learn how to speak quicker than boys anyway, don't yeah, they? Yeah, we're better. Uh, exactly. Um, but I was, I was surprisingly a very quiet baby, which, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. so don't, if you've got a quiet baby, don't think you're stuck with one forever. But um, <laughs> yeah, and I suppose, so in terms of politics though, what I meant was, I think because of all the defeats and the, they got defeated a lot, yeah. they had four kids. And I think they were like, we've done our bit. And they would, they would always say we're just kind of tired. So I was definitely surrounded by lots of left-wing books. And obviously they didn't... I got this impression Thatcher was not good. Sure. Like the general gist of Thatcher yeah. was bad. Um, like if you did something naughty, Thatcher would come and kill you in your bed or something. <laughs> like I, I, was I got, she the boogeyman for essentially, you? Essentially, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not really joking at this point. So I got that gist. Go to bed or Mrs. Thatcher's coming. Yeah. I said, yeah. I feel like that but, would work. But unironically... <laughs> Unironically. So I got a kind of left-wing vibe, but they didn't want me to get involved. They kind of felt they'd commit their life to it. It hadn't really panned out. Uh, so don't do the same thing. And I suppose the good thing is, in my case, it didn't end in failure. <laughs> it didn't, no. No. It's, um, the joke is it did. That was the joke. The, jo <laughs> the joke was it did end in failure. It didn't end in failure. What yeah, are you talking about? Yeah, we live in socialism. No, we don't live in socialism, but you're... You know, you're, you're doing good things in the world. Okay, well, I'll take that. But sure. yeah, but they, they wanted to dissuade me from that. So I was going to, I think, you know, I didn't know what, I, did you know what you wanted to be? Because I wanted to be a, an astrophysicist, right? And I didn't really know what that was, but I just liked space. Right. So I got kind of fixated with astrophysics. Yeah. But then I realised I wasn't good at maths. You right. can't yeah, do you physics without maths. Yeah. Um, I um, wanted to be a nurse, but then I found out the people that were on casualty were actors, and then I wanted to be an actor. <laughs> And that's just the truth. And then acting didn't work out, and I was like, I'll try and be funny. I wanted to be an actor, and actually, it, I, I once, like, like, there was an audition to, in The Winter's Tale. 
in Manchester's Royal Exchange. Yeah, yeah. And I got through to the second part and then I bombed, clearly. Right. But that would have... Otherwise, maybe I would have just become an actor. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, that would be You could still retrain. There's loads of work out there for actors. <laughs> and abundance. It's absolutely booming. I went out with an actor for 14 years, and all I'd say is there's one profession for kids I'd ban them from doing, and that's yes. being an actor. Oh, 100%. Like, even yeah. if they become a Tory... Well, no, maybe no. not. But, uh, <laughs> but just not an actor. No, it's... It's um, no life. No, I mean, Never go some, out with an actor, either. For, are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> Have your gin and tonic. Come on. Chill out. Um, so I was wondering... So I was thinking a lot about when I was thinking about interviewing you I was thinking about you this week and I was thinking about the fact that so much of your work is about injustices and I've read loads of your work and I've read your books and it made me think like so I remember my first moment when I realized I didn't really know the word for feminism but my first sort of like feminist act was when I was in year seven at school and there was a boys football team and they put loads of money into it so that they could go and play around the country and there was a girls football team which was me, the other lesbian, and ten other girls that we forced into playing. <laughs> and, 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 and they were like, oh, no. And, and they, they, didn't put any, they didn't encourage us. They didn't put in any time for our training. And I went to the head, or the head of our year, and was like, why can't the girls have a football team? And she said, you've got netball. And, I mean, red rag to a bull. Um, I mean, that's homophobia, but we'll talk about that another time. That's a hate crime. That, it is a hate crime. But... I remember that being, and I appreciate that's not like, you know, people have it worse. I know that before anyone gets angry in here or writes in. Um, like, but I think that was the first time that I was like, oh God, I need to use my voice to, 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 to tell that this isn't fair. Like this is so isn't fair. Was there a moment when you realized, when you first sort of like used your voice? Well, I think, okay, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think Thank the you. problem was, <laughs> don't worry about it. Um, I think it's tricky because I, I think where I grew up, like, if you seemed too studious or intellectually engaged, that was not a good thing. Yeah. So I don't think in any formal way I did it in that. I mean, I remember growing so my take my primary school, like, you know, I was the only boy in my primary school to go to sixth form, let alone university, more went to prison. Right. So I was always very aware of people with odds stacked against them from... from yeah from birth, I suppose. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of something where maybe we organised and, you know, we but it didn't really work like that. I mean, now I just sound rubbish. Like, I should have done no, some big act of revolutionary struggle. No, 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 not at all. It's just, I think... What we would do obnoxiously with our parents, I do remember, is, <laughs> like, if <laughs> we would try and steal their political vocabulary and deploy it against them. Oh, that's good. So, for example, if they tried to, you know, like, send us to bed early, we'd be like, this is an act of fascism. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But I don't think that's quite what you were talking no, about. No, it's not. If I'm honest, it's not quite you finding your voice no. as a political commentator. But, but it is a lovely story, nevertheless. I did... What I really like doing is writing fiction. And I got... And I was encouraged to do that. And I remember my, my primary school teacher tried... Like, oh, you know, this, maybe I should... No, someone said I basically do write fiction. No, but I mean, I was really into writing stories and I, I, I just remember, like, things that injustice trying to wield yeah. them in, probably not in a very subtle way, though. Did you feel like an outsider at school? Um, not generally, no. I mean, I think there was such a strong atmosphere to conform. Mm. I just remember, like... I mean, it's interesting about homophobia, actually, because there was always this low hum of homophobia. Yeah, I've got that exact thing written down. 1990s Stockport, there was a constant hum of homophobia Just like a background, a background of hum. Well, there you go. It just turns out my... Oh, yeah, so it does say that. Yeah. Did, I did... So <laughs> yeah, I'm very, I'm very I do repetitive. do my research. No, not at all. I inherited that from my dad. Always said the same thing over and over again. I did that. Um, yeah, I mean... So, and I think looking back, it just, it was so obvious that it was gender policing. Mm. That homophobia, above all else, isn't revulsion at same-sex acts. It's about, um, because most straight, I'm not trying to say straight men are the real victims of homophobia. No, no, no. But the vast majority, of, or a large majority of straight men have had some form of homophobic yeah. use, even if it's supposed to be tongue-in-cheek. So if you're seen as too studious, yeah. if you're seen as not aggressive enough, if you don't talk about women in a degrading way, it's like, are you gay, are you a puffy, some sort of queer. Yeah, or even if you're sort of being... Caring. It, oh, yeah. Like caring 100%. about people. It's 100%. like, oh. A man who shows any form of compassion mm. or talks about their feelings. I mean, you know, the biggest killer of men under 45 in Britain is suicide. And one of the reasons for that is men are, um, are less likely to have some form of mental distress 
than women, but they're less likely to do something about it because it's seen as unmanly. And mm. so, you know, homophobia is like the violent border guard of masculinity. It exists to try and bludgeon men into behaving in certain ways and and clamping down on anyone who deviates from it. Now, th those who are seen as the worst um, kind of violators of those norms are, of course, gay people. Mm. That's why Margaret Atwood, you know, the Handmaid's Tale, yeah. they're gender traitors. And I think yeah. that's a really, you know, LGBTQ people in general are gender traitors. And that's what unites LGBT and Q. We're all seen as traitors to the gender norms assigned to us. Mm. Um, so it was very obvious growing up, like you just, you, if you want, you, you know, you don't stick out. You don't do, you know, if you, sh if you're, if you show your studio so intellectually engaged, then, or, you know, interested in books or anything like yeah. that, it's, n it's not, it wasn't a good idea. So did you have to do that on the sly? Well, a bit, I don't know. I mean, it was because I wasn't sporty. So like I did, I mean, like I probably had bits in the middle. I remember where things probably, I didn't feel very happy at school. Mm. By the end of it, I remember like I'd go to the local studio. I what I did, I remember I turned up at the end of like with bleached hair. Like, I mean, I don't know why they didn't think I was a massive homosexual at yeah, this point. Yeah, it sounds, sounds very like twinky to me. I had, like, an eyebrow sure. piercing. I'm oh, like, wow. I mean, do you know yeah. what I mean? It's like, come on. Um, Boys. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean. But, um, yeah, I mean, I look like... Do you remember the Judder Man? The um, Schnapps Judder Man. He had this... No, no one knows what to talk about. Let's move on. Anyway, I... Um, or the guy, Linkin Park guy. Yeah. Yeah, that's better. That's fine. We'll do sure. that. Um, he wasn't gay. So it wasn't... Just a caring guy. Very caring. <laughs> Very compassionate. So, but I just remember at that point, I'd go to the local student union and just the whole stick was you get drunk and you just get off with each other. Right. Obviously with the opposite Was gender. this at uni or? No, this was, was when before. I was 15. And you can imagine how oh. young I look. I don't like. I, no, you look quite young now. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, I don't know if I can still get away with saying that because now I'm 38. I realise I used to say that all the time, but now I don't know how, how much purchase that has. But when I was 15, I COVID, the, the pandemic was cruel to all of us. Don't take it personally. <laughs> But I was, yeah, so I'd go to the Psycho Studio and just get drunk and alco pops. Yeah. Um, just, it was horrific. Um, but I, and the whole thing then was just getting off with girls, mm -hmm. being drunk. My, my, my mates at that point were quite laddish. Right. They were quite laddish, leery guys. And that gave me some sort of protection, I think. And were you aware of your sexuality at that point? Yeah, yeah, t totally. In a kind of, oh God, no. Yeah, I think I felt at the time, it was like, I remember reading one of these. Do you remember these, like, growing up books, which were, like, these quite basic... I can't read. <laughs> I'm actually illiterate. <laughs> but it'd be like, here's how babies are made. And yeah, it'd be like, we had Judy Bloom. Oh, I can't remember. We, Do you remember Judy Bloom? Yeah. Be like, oh, my God, you got your period. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, you kissed that boy. Oh, my God, he put his hand up your top. Oh well, I learned, because I had a twin sister. I'm actually writing some young adult fiction right now, so <laughs> do sign up to my mailing list. <laughs> Actually, I'm gonna do. Actually, most of my sex education, because one of the advantages of having a twin sister is I could. I just read Bliss and Sugar all the oh. time because she was subscribed and Cosmopolitan when she got a bit older. And so, what about more? More position of yeah. Bill Fortnight. She, I know they did. Yeah, they did. I still remember all of them. I cut them out and put them in a little box. No, I didn't. Do that. Um, but I, that's how I learned about sex by reading Bliss and Sugar. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> Very helpful. So um, when I went through my straight phase, um, that. I put that to good use. Good for you. Yeah, good. Um, but you were aware of your sexuality, but you were like, oh, I'm not doing anything about this. Exactly. So I remember the first, like, uh, weird, when I was 15, going round, to, someone invited me and said there would be a party at theirs. There was no one there. Right. And then we just got drunk and played Truth or Dare, which sounds like the beginnings of some sort of quite basic pornographic film, actually, in hindsight. But after, I remember saying afterwards, at least I'm not gay, I'm not gay, I'm not gay. I'm, uh, I didn't enjoy that at all. And then I decided, I was like, you know, oh, the, the growing up book, there was this passage Sorry, that I hung yeah. on to, which said a lot of people go through this phase, it's very normal to go through this phase, but then you, you grow out of it. So I was like, well, that's what I'm doing now, so yeah. I'll be fine. Um, and then, because at university I had a girlfriend for a year, and at that point I, I just was, you know, I'd say I'm bisexual, I'm bisexual, mm -hmm. which is annoying for genuine bisexual yes. people. So yes. I do apologise to all of those in the audience. Um, yeah, I was... <laughs> He apologised! He apologised! I said I'm sorry. Um, yeah, and I think I had a lot of internalised homophobia. Mm -hmm. And it's odd because my parents weren't homophobic. Yeah. But I think just growing up in, you know, just growing up in that school environment was just so dominant. Yeah, in Section 28. 
Exactly. Same well, as me. Section 28 was in place until I was at sixth form. So mm-hmm. I think it was repealed in 2002. That's when I left sixth form. And in fact, I remember the only time LGBTQ issues were discussed in any way, the head teacher did this class where you, and people wrote like, um, on a piece of paper like anonymous questions mm-hmm. and then ended up people just started writing stuff like have you had experiences with French maids it just got ridiculous <laughs> but then someone said but to have me about, you had any yeah, experiences well, with French that maids that was my first experience <laughs> sorry um, and then someone asked something about anal sex and then he just went on about how bad and, and terrible and unhealthy it was right. so that was like that was it so I think I just had this bad I had this internal time before, which actually I worked through my 20s to get over because mm. even when I started like my first boyfriend was at university and he was captain of his rowing team. He was a uh, rugby player and all the rest of it. And because he was like, mask for mask or whatever, in my head, I was like, that's fine. That's fine. It doesn't, you know, uh, he's just like a guy. He's not. And um, so I had all these terrible problems with internalized homophobia. Yeah. Uh, I was, you know, and I, I was really proud of that I didn't have any gay friends. And now all my friends are like queer people. But mm. at the time, you know, it, 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 I just found it very difficult to... I, I just, in my head, I was in a sulk about being gay. I yeah. was like, this makes life so much hard, harder. Because you grow up, don't you, with this idea of you'll settle down. You've got this roadmap, don't mm-hmm. you, if you're straight? I mean, yeah. not everyone goes through that roadmap. I don't want to say... No, no, you know, no, no but be, absolutely. But it's just like, it just gets taken away from you. Mm-hmm. And at the time, on, in cult, popular culture, there, there was basically Will and Grace. Yeah. And there was George Michael. And George Michael was just a joke in playgrounds in a really terrible way at the time. Yeah. So you didn't have good representation. I remember when Queer as Folk came out, which was brilliant. I remember sneaking, watching it when I was 14. But again, it was an, a work of genius, but it was still quite a lot, I think, to process if you yes. had a lot of internalised homophobia. So, you know, I didn't know anyone who was... Qu- not a single person in my school would, would come out. It would be social death yeah. if they would have done that. And also at the time, there was no one in the media that was like, I'm gay or queer or however you wanted to describe yourself. And I'm also happy. Like it, the, 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 it was like, oh, we, if you were, if it was a gay story, tragedy. It would be tragedy. It would be gay bashing, or it would be the AIDS crisis, or it would be, totally. you know, a, a, a lesbian dying. The, and the AIDS crisis. We love doing that, don't we, on telly? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, kill me again. It was weird because the AIDS crisis still. Because I was born in 1984, so you know, by the time I was 16, it, you know, it was 2000, but. It it, lo- it it looms so large yeah. in my understanding of being gay. Yeah. Um, I remember, like, when I was 16, having had some... One of my first sexual experiences with a guy, and I was just convinced that I had HIV. Mm. And it became... It's weird how that... It's not often discussed enough, that sense of internalised shame and HIV, I think, welded itself together for a lot of younger gay men of that generation. Um, so just that sense, you know, already being gay, internal homophobia of being dirty and sinful and wrong. And then you had, you know, HIV in, in the mix and you didn't have LGBTQ education at school yep. um, to kind of combat that stigma. And all your fellow classmates were talking about gay was the ultimate insult. Yep. It, so yeah. Gay. So it took eight. But I was quite ashamed looking back because I would say terrible homophobic things. Um, but do, I, I, I remember being like, I'm not a lesser. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> she <twist>. says, <laughs> yeah, she says in her suit and her dot mountains. Um, but it, but 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 because I was so because I had such extreme internalized homophobia that I was like anything but that, anything but that. Because I don't know how I'd deal with that, and I don't think I can be a happy person with that. And and similar to you, I had a I had a boyfriend for quite a long time when I first moved to London. I lived with a guy, um, and it was like, do you know what? He's a nice guy. This will be an. This will have to do. This will, I, I can just never. The, the other the the uh, the opening that door to being gay and to telling everyone just seemed. It seemed inconceivable that totally. I would do it. Totally. It seemed, I, I couldn't even imagine that that would be okay. That's exactly how I felt. The idea of coming out just felt absolutely no way. Absolutely not because it was like pressing a big big red button and that's. That's your life forever. It's weird, by the way, looking back, how, because you're right, you didn't have people in the media often. You got these little life rafts I look back at. I remember watching daytime television and there was some older gay guy, who's probably like younger than me now, actually, but at the so time he seemed really, so really old. So an older old. gay guy, yeah, yeah. Like a really old gay guy. A bear, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he rang into like... A daddy. Yeah, a daddy. Yeah. He rang a daddy bear. Uh-huh, he was like 29. Oh. Uh, but he was like... Daddy. He, he rang into this morning or something and he just said, you know what? I was panicking when I was younger, this is, but I'm happy and it's so important. And actually just that one thing made such a difference. It's yeah. really interesting, those kind of little 
became like life rafts. Yeah. But I think, you know, when I came, yeah, I came out and I came, you know, I came out as bisexual at the time. Um, and that was in, when you were at uni? Exactly, yeah. It and was, you went to Oxford? Yeah. How was that with your, was that sort of the first time you were sort of, because I don't want to make assumptions. I've done a gig at Oxford. Some people seem really fucking posh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, like, not everyone, but some of them, I think they got a bit of dosh. I'm just saying. I think a few of them got a little bit of dosh. Um, have, I, have I misspoke? Is that... <laughs> Helen Lederer would understand. So, so which I don't even know. I don't even know anything about her. It's just, fun. just, it's just a funny thing to keep saying. She would, thank you, darling. Cheers, babe. <laughs> thank God I got a friend in. Um... <laughs> Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. So, <laughs> I wondered if it was a culture shock for you Massive. coming from like a really socialist home yeah. to being like with people that went to Eton and yeah. Well, to... I've never met anyone, and, and I'm not saying this. I'm no working class here at all, but I'd never met anyone. From... What? Cut them off. Yeah. That's it. It's <laughs> very specific spec that we asked for. Um, I'd never met anyone from a grammar school, let alone a private school. So, I mean, it was. Um, I remember when we went to the open day and our, our sixth form, which is the biggest sixth form in the country, they basically encouraged some of us to apply, but kind of like a laugh. Uh, they, they did these mock interviews, which are just so embarrassing looking back. They were the worst thing they could have done. Because the mock interviews were things like, why are you applying to Oxford? Uh, do you like, what are your hobbies? And then you turn up and my first question was, Lenin was a German spy, wasn't he, Owen? I was like, what? <laughs> what is this? Anyway, but I remember going to this... John Lennon was a German... No, Lenin. I'm, I'm, Vladimir I'm Lenin. joking. Vladimir. I'm joking. Sorry. Sorry. Ruin that. Was, you were too deadpan. Too deadpan. I just met... Like, my friend, we started... We played this game of playing song lyrics to describe how we felt. And, like, I remember people going, like, in the words of Tom York, I don't belong here. Like, people just... We just hated it. Sure. And we wanted to get out as quickly yeah. as we could. When I went there, I mean, it was really interesting because you, you ended up ending up kind of in circles of people most like you. So I ended up with people who went to some form of state school, not out of choice. It just generally ended, not, not exclusively. Mm. And we call like the posh ones were like the gap year crew because they'd often gone on gap and they had beads and they were just really obnoxious, a lot of them. And now they're, and now they're, yeah, and now yeah. they're running the country. Yeah, when I saw like Simon Clark, does anyone know, si do you remember Simon Clark? Simon Clark's in the cabinet. Okay. Oh, he was in the year below me. It's, he's just like, the, he was just, the fact they're running the country, I went, to, they were the most obnoxious people I've ever met. I did not go to Oxford liking conservatives, is all I'd say. By the end of it, I was like, burn them to the ground, the party. <laughs> Don't get me arrested for hate crimes uh, or violent crimes or whatever. It was just, they were just beyond parody how obnoxious they were. They would sing songs about, you know, denouncing the working class. But they were just, you know, just caricatures of bad people in, in a film. They were just, you know, just. Or they were bad people. God, sometimes the coming out bit's really sad, but today it's just <laughs> the world bit. It is brutal, isn't it? It's sad. Can we say something chirpy now? Yeah. Sort of <laughs> lighten things up a bit. Who was your first crush? David Chikovny in the X-Files. Oh. Hot. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hot. Even some straight men kind of fancied him at the time. Yeah. Oh, for sure. He was a fitty. Yeah. I think maybe that turned me gay. Maybe I wasn't gay and that turned me gay. The X-Files turned you gay? Yeah, I was, I was like... The X-Files might have turned me gay, actually. <laughs> she is hot. Oh, if we hadn't watched The X-Files, we could be married right now. I know, now. right now. Even though we're brother and sister, yeah, so weird. that's incest. <laughs> but we're from Portsmouth, so it kind of makes sense. <laughs> um, I was wondering about you. Like, you, you really put your head above the parapet in sort of everything you do. You're very, you know, you're very brave and you're very outspoken. Gobby little shit, go on, just say it. No, gobby left-wing shit. Um, <laughs> which I am as well, don't worry. Um, but I wondered whether, like, was there a point when you thought, oh, do you know what, maybe I don't want to be, like, in the spotlight quite as much? Like, is it, because it's quite a heavy burden to, is it? I'm, I'm saying, yeah, like, is it a I heavy don't burden? I don't enjoy it a lot of the time. I didn't want to do this, I should just be clear. What happened was, I find the whole thing ludicrous in hindsight, 
a robot called Chavs. Yeah. And it was for a small left-wing publishing company. It came out, and I didn't think much would come of it. And then it just became, because of the time we were in, yeah. toys came to power, austerity, financial crash, cuts to be benefits, that kind of yeah. thing. It had a big audience, so it became this big bestseller. And then I was asked to go on TV to talk about it and write things in newspapers about it. But then they were like, could you come on and talk about other stuff? And could you write about other stuff? And it went from there. So I didn't want, I didn't, I wasn't like, this is my ambition. It was, it just, esca it just got out of control in a way. Mm. In a, in, it, and at the time I found the whole thing just so weird and disorientating because I never wanted to be a writer when I was growing up. Like, I just didn't really cross my mind. So I think when it happened, and then <laughs> I think the problem is since, the last few years, things just got a bit dark, yeah. like Nazis everywhere. Um, yeah. and, and that, it just became, um, I found that kind of surreal where just the kind of level of animosity and, and you know, that went into the real world. I yeah. ended up getting mobbed by far activists. Yeah, and, was and that, were you, were you like at a demonstration or something? No, I got, a, no, I got attacked by a neo-Nazi my birthday. Oh, I've, yes, I was, read about it, that. It was, it was, right, okay, right, okay. This was, The trial was kind of funny, which maybe I shouldn't say. He got sent to prison. I didn't want him to go to prison. It wasn't my, I, I'm not a prison guy. Yeah. He got like a long, he got two years, eight months. It was ludicrous. But it was, um, he had, his, his house was full of like Nazi flags, SS, Combat 18. And, and he, he was asked about us by the, by the lawyer, who's just like, I'm just a hoarder. <laughs> but, <laughs> but then I still found, I still found the most ridiculous part of the trial. I still, I can never get this out of my head because they must have like, like planned their defence, surely. Right. So what happened? That you were out on oh, your so birthday. Basically, I was out on my birthday. We left the Lexington pub, which is a great pub, and I would not don't just go to the. I felt really guilty because it was in the news. You kept saying the Lexington. Yeah, I said it. Again. You won't get gay bashed at the Lexington. Uh, you won't get gay bashed. But basically, I left saying goodbye to my friends, and then I was just. Karate kicked to the ground and punched and stuff. Um, yeah, the whole thing was kind of. It was. It was I didn't. Uh, when it happened, I was like, "What's uh, Where am I?" It was very, very weird and disorientating. And th they knew who you were, and they. Were so what? So it turned, they found out who they were, and they were far right football hooligans. Right. Um, so they took, but the, 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 it was only the main guy who got ass aggravated assault. So th it wasn't the trial. Wasn't whether he assaulted me. It was about was it aggravated by far-right extremism and homophobia. Right, okay. But he, um, the lawyer asked him, said, you know, like they got in a character witness, his best friend, and they right. were like, would you say the defendant, James Healy, is of trustworthy character? He said, yes, in fact, so much so. This isn't a court, by the way. He said, so much so that if I had an attractive girlfriend and I went to bed and I left him talking to her, I would trust him not to have sex with her. <laughs> And like, there was a female judge and everyone just was like... And she was like, wow, what? you must really trust him. Like, what? What? That, that was the character defence. I wouldn't... He wouldn't have sex with my girlfriend. Are you kidding me? That is hilarious. <laughs> so anyway, he went to prison. It seems right. It seems right. So, but, but is that something that you now have to think about yeah so basically what happened before that is that it, lots of things were escalating like these far-right extremists stormed the guardian demanding to see me not probably not just like a little cup of tea uh like just for a little chat over a gin and tonic um yeah and they did things like took pictures of um, me in the pub and did a video going we're gonna find you we're gonna find you the funniest one again this is quite you gotta find this funny some of it someone and i still find this ridiculous they spray painted a random farm gate in in kent and they spray painted it with Hang Owen Jones. But then, just to be very clear, they were being very specific. They wrote in brackets, the Guardian paper writer. <laughs> just to be clear, they weren't. Maybe they came back afterwards. They were like, went to the pub afterwards. Like, it's really bugging me. They'll think it's some other Owen Jones. I need to go back. Yeah. Get my spray. Case is yeah. a farmer nearby. So it just, it, things were escalating. So the Guardian hired the security agency and they did this deep dive and all the rest of it. And they said the most likely thing to happen would be that I turn up to a pub and opportunistically there'd be some drunk far right extremists and they'd attack me. And that's what happened. What I have to do now is I have to do all these. I just have to go to just, I just have to go to, stop going to straight, straight places as it turns out. They don't normally go to queer places, Nazis. No. It's not, no, it's not there. Not their vibe. No. But that's really, because I've had. I'm really sorry that happened. It's fine, honestly. It's fine. Might as well joke about it. But I, I've had it where people have sort of sent me horrible tweets or said they're going to turn up to shows or they're going to get me on the way home. I've got a car, babe. Good luck. Um, <laughs> but... 
But if they've got a car as well, I mean, I don't know. But... What was funny is the security agents have these recommendations, so I had to follow them. And I, right. like, you know, never leave a pub by myself, that kind of thing. But one recommendation they put to the Guardian is the Guardian should pay for Soho House membership, because which they didn't do. I was like, come on, <laughs> give me a. I was like, it's very important to stop me being beaten up by Nazis. Would you like I'm... to go to the Groucho? Because I've got someone that can get you in. <laughs> can I ask who's at the Groucho tonight? Um... I couldn't possibly say. Now I don't know how you're feeling at the moment, and I don't know how people in this room feel. Like I feel like there was a moment, maybe five years ago. Ten years ago, we got marriage equality. And it really felt like things were like moving in a positive way, that like things were improving, we could get married, you know, we could have kids, more and more of us were getting married and having kids, whether that's what you want, or we could just live, you know, a life that felt more hopeful or felt like we could have, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I felt like I could grab things more and that I had my place somehow. And then in the last maybe 12 months, it feels like there's just, this undercurrent of homophobia yeah. that's happening. Are you doing my hand gestures? Because I'm hand gesturing. Oh, okay. Oh, I like that. Because I was like, am I doing this? Because then you started doing it. And I was like, oh my God, is it a mirror? This is, is, is there no one here? Am I just hearing the laughs in my head? Oh God, cool mum. Yeah. But yeah, do you feel the same? Yeah. yeah, right? It felt like we were really on the road and things were getting so much better and equality looked like it was coming. I think like a cruel lesson every minority has to learn at some point is that there's an illusion that you live through an era in which things are just constantly improving and that will be your lot forever. Mm. And you know, because of the struggle of LGBTQ people, huge cost, people who are spat at in the streets, people who are battened by police officers, people who are vilified by the press, people who were, who were thrown into prison, people who were sterilized, like mm -hmm. Alan Turing, yep. you know, these are the giants on whose shoulders we stand. And because of their struggle and their sacrifice and the humiliation and the horrors they went through, we got the changes in law under a Labour government, which mm -hmm. we should obviously, that, you know, that was a two-pronged, that would have only happened because people fought for it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, growing up, you're right. All of a sudden, you've got the repeal of Section 28. You've got anti-discrimination laws. You've got the rights of partnerships later on marriage, the right to adoption. Um, you've got uh, the equalisation of the age of consent. You've got all, yep. the, all these things that just seemed, you know, and, and social attitudes changed. I mean, you know, in 1987, according to the Social Attitude Survey, only 10% of people thought same-sex relations were fine. And two-thirds said always wrong or mostly wrong, and half of those 50% said always wrong. And that was worse than 1983, and it was only in 1993 it got back to where things were in 1983. So it, it suddenly things seemed better. The attitudes changed, the laws went. But the problem is, in the last few years, partly because of the anti-trans moral panic, which has been whipped up by many of my colleagues in the media, um, not just those who call themselves right-wing, um, by the political elite, by a well-connected group of activists who frankly should be treated as a cult, because that's the way they behave. And what they have done is whip up such an avalanche of anti-trans bile, and it, that should be in of itself reason to oppose it. You know, you talk to trans people, many trans people I'm close to, and they, they, they want to leave the country, they think it's a hostile environment. Um, but it's, it will always, it was always going to ricochet across the LGBTQ rainbow for the reason I said earlier, because the reason we're all, you know, the reason the same people hate us is because we're all seen as traitors to gender norms. And so what's happened, you've seen now, you know, all the time now, you know, the resurrection of things like, okay, you know, okay, groomer, often mm. directed at gay and bisexual men. Of course, the, one of the oldest homophobic canards was your paedophiles. You're going to prey on children. Um, uh, uh, you've got, you know, the, a, a fourfold increase in transphobic hate crimes and a threefold increase in homophobic hate crimes. And of course it's linked, you know, there's a general anti-LGBTQ atmosphere that has been whipped up very cynically and very deliberately. And it's so important that we call out for what it is because, you know, things are going backwards. This, um, that's just a, an absolute reality. There, you've got an anti-LGBTQ moral panic which is ricocheting across the rainbow. Um, and unless we stand together, if we're allowed to be picked off, they will pick us off one by one and things will just regress very badly. We've got to stand by our trans siblings because it's the right thing to do. But also, as many of them say, they're the canary in the mine. And if they take out trans rights, they will come for the rest of us. So it's so, so important that LGBTQ people and our allies stand together and hold the line because they're coming for all of us. And it's only if we unite that we'll be able to fight back and win, which is what we've always done. <laughs>
absolutely. It'll be fine. Yeah, it'll be fine. <laughs> so we've come to the end of our time together, and I've loved chatting to you. you too. Thank you so much for it's coming on the show. Time. We don't really know each other. We met each other at the Stonewall Awards very briefly. Uh, yeah. You were class act as always. She was hosting. Sure. Yeah. Um, Hira. <laughs> Weddings by This lot can't hire me. <laughs> can't afford it. So dig deep. They're alcoholics. They're out on a Friday. You can't trust these people. But um, the same question that I ask absolutely everyone that comes on the show, and I'm maybe thinking of that version of you that was maybe thinking, well, if I'm going to be gay, I can only be this kind of gay, and I'm going to be a gay that's mask for mask. Very mask for mask, as you can see. Yeah, I'm very mask for mask. Um, but... I'm thinking of that version of you, and you can think of, you know, picking up an imaginary phone and calling yourself, or maybe someone that's listening to this show right this minute, and we're in their ears, and maybe they're going through something similar right now. If you could get in touch with them and say something, give them a bit of advice, what would you say? Oh, it's such a good... Because the one thing I wouldn't say, I hate the it gets better thing, I didn't... Because partly for the reasons to say, I don't, I don't necessarily like that. But, um, so, oh yeah, great, I've just come up with a really miserable thing already at the no, beginning. No, no, no. Don't fine. say that to them. Um... That, you know, whatever happens, you will find people who love you for who you are. And um, that the important thing is that you always always stand by, you know, the most important thing we always have is, is whether people call it love or solidarity, is standing by each other when we're in need. And for me, what I've learned with LGBTQ people is a lot of people have had a lot of harm inflicted on them by society and their families. You know, when mm. you hear, you know, parents know best for yeah. their kids, sometimes they do, but often with our, as we know from our people, they don't, um, is that we look after each other, that we show each other love and affection, that we are able to show weakness. Um, and, you know, that if we're able to show weakness and, and get support from others, that we can do the same. So it's always, for me, it's just, you know, you will have people to look out for you. Um, you'll have people who will love you uh, for who you are, that things will be difficult. It's important that people know there'll be difficult moments and hard moments, but you will find people who'll be there to support and love you for who you are. And, you know, the one thing we, we always have in this bizarre community or communities of the LGBTQ world, whatever happens, I do actually think we have a lot of compassion and love for each other. Uh, we've gone through a lot together. Um, so, yeah, I'd say something less convoluted than that. It was perfect. <laughs> I liked how convoluted that was. <laughs> it was beautiful. Thank you so much for coming this evening. I love making out and it's a very much a passion project of mine and it really means a lot that so many of you have come out tonight and supported the show. So yes, thank you very much. Please give a huge round of applause to Owen Jones. Uh, please give a round of applause to Emma, my producer who edits all the shows and listens to all the interviews and makes them all brilliant. My friend Mob who filmed it for me tonight. Uh, my name's Susie Ruffle. Thank you so much for coming out. Good night. That was the brilliant Owen Jones live at the Soho Theatre. I'm going to hope to do more live ones next year. As I said before, this is going to be the last one of this series. There is a bonus episode next week, so make sure you download that. But um, I'll be back probably in February. I'm going to bank up a load of them whilst I've got some time off in January. I mean, you don't need to know my schedule, but maybe you want to know. I'm going to bank up loads of them while I've got more time in January, and then um, I'll, I'll release another series probably starting in February. Uh, thank you ever so much for listening. Uh, I hope that you have a lovely Christmas. If you're someone that celebrates Christmas, I hope you have a brilliant one. I'll say Happy New Year next week when I'm on the bonus episode. Have a lovely Christmas. And if you don't celebrate Christmas, have a lovely day of eating lovely food. Okay, um, that's all from me. Bye, bye, bye. Mm -hmm.